0: Welcome back to the Dirt Show. Lots of the letters that I've gotten uh, since the time the show began asks me about the stuff on my wall. Um, I've mentioned before, I'm a, a collector. I collect uh, American history, I collect also Israeli history, um, and in general, um, material that that inspires me and in my work on behalf of um, of human rights. And so I decided to devote this show to uh, the wall, coming into my house in New York, that shows some of the most important uh, elements of of my collection and of American history. I guess the best place to begin anything about American history is the Declaration of Independence. This is a very early copy. What happened historically was the original Declaration of Independence was disintegrating. It was sent to the American archives and was not long for its existence. So Congress authorized a particular printer uh, to make several hundred copies. Uh, and this is one of the original uh, copies that were made several years after the Declaration of Independence. But it's a, a perfect copy with all the names of the signatories. Obviously, we all recognize the big signature of John Hancock, who wrote it very largely so that the King of England could see it clearly and, and sentence him to death for treason if they lost the war. Obviously, this includes Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, uh, the authors of the Declaration of uh, Independence, as well as many of the other signatories. I had a law school friend, John Hart Ely, who was very proud of the fact that a heart... And in Ely, uh, ancestors of his had both signed the Declaration of Independence. So on both sides of his family, he was a son of the American Revolution. I guess in order after the Declaration of Independence um, would be this incredible letter signed by George Washington, uh, big, bold signature of, of G. Washington, uh, dated uh, about a year after the Declaration of Independence uh, while Washington was engaged in military operations and was, of course, the Commander-in-Chief of the United States Armed Forces. And he wrote this three-page letter, the remainder of the letter is on, on the back, which includes, uh, incredibly, directions to his troops. and um, Washington really micromanaged the war in many ways, and telling them what to defend, what not to defend, where to retreat to, how to retreat. But for me, the most significant part of this letter, and it will be controversial for some of you out there, is there's a paragraph in which he essentially says that um, we're not going to lose the war to the British. We are military superior, but we could lose the war. The smallpox. Smallpox is ravaging the troops. And so he says in the letter, emphatically, the first and most important thing is for all commanders to demand that every single American soldier, every single patriot, be inoculated against smallpox. And so early in American history, before the Constitution, the general of the armed forces commanded every soldier to be inoculated. That doesn't serve as precedent to mean that every American civilian would have to be inoculated, but in my book, The Case for um, um, uh, Inoculation or Vaccines, I make the argument that if it were ever essential to the survival of the country, um, probably a mandatory vaccination would would be permitted. The interesting thing about this letter is it's signed by George Washington But it's not written by him. Washington dictated it, and he dictated it to his 21 or 22 or 23, we're not sure, year-old assistant. You may have heard of him. His name was Alexander Hamilton. Yeah, Alexander Hamilton was George Washington's scribe assistant in the beginning of the war. And again, this letter is 1777. He ultimately became... A general on his own and a commander and a great, great soldier and a great patriot. But at this point in time, he was only George Washington's secretary. And there's a, a picture, a famous picture of the first time Washington meets uh, Hamilton. And Washington and Hamilton had a, a, a love hate relationship. I would say more of a love neutral relationship. Um, In the beginning, uh, Washington was completely enamored of Hamilton and vice versa. As they grew closer together and as the war progressed, there were some tensions between them. But, of course, one of the first people that Washington uh, appointed to his cabinet when he was elected the first president of the United States was the very young Alexander Hamilton, who became the secretary of the Treasury and really created... Uh, American financial institutions, the banks and uh, foreign trade, and uh, requiring us to assume the debt of the states. Uh, He was the brilliant uh, mind behind the original economy. Indeed, there were great fights early on in our history between the Jeffersonians and the Hamiltonians. Jefferson wanted America essentially to be a rural uh, 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 agricultural country which emphasized cotton and tobacco and other products. Um, Whereas Hamilton understood that there's no future in in, in cotton and there's no future in tobacco, especially since they required slavery to be economically efficient. And he saw the future and wanted to see the United States, a, a nation of commerce, a nation that traded, a nation of finance. Uh, he essentially created Wall Street, for better or worse, but he basically created Wall Street, and um, and this letter is is, is a phenomenal uh, look back into into history. Moving forward a little bit, this is a letter from Thomas Jefferson, written on July third, eighteen o one. Now that's just before the twenty fifth anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, and. Uh, my son and I were walking down the street one day in New York, and we went to my favorite bookshop, the Argosy Bookshop, and asked if they had any autographs. I collect autographs, and I was looking for particularly autographs of old Brooklyn Dodgers, and she said no, she didn't have any. But she did have a letter that just came in from uh, Thomas Jefferson to a guy named Elijah Boardman in 1801, and had been in the Boardman family ever since. And somebody in the Boardman family, divorce, death, who knows what the reason was, Uh, sold it to the the bookstore, and she wanted, if I wanted to buy it, I said, what's in it? She said, I don't know, I haven't read it, and she asked me to read it, and my eyes lit up. It was an incredible letter, probably one of the most important letters ever written by Thomas Jefferson in defense of freedom of speech and the First Amendment. Uh, He basically says in the letter, we have nothing to fear from the uh, demoralizing reasoning of some, uh, so long as it's left others are free to demonstrate their fallacy, the marketplace of ideas. And so here we have a letter signed by Thomas Jefferson uh, and with handwritten uh, letter envelope from Thomas Jefferson to Elijah Boardman. And uh, this is um, a really important piece for me because it represents the um, freedom of speech that I care so deeply about. Um, Next, although it's, I guess chronologically, a little out of order, is a really, really, really interesting letter from then President John Adams. Let's see, was he president or was he vice president? I'm not sure, let's see what year it was, 97, so he was president, Um, and he writes a letter to a, a friend. Uh, in which he says, I don't understand this guy Hamilton. He's so smart. How can a smart person like that get caught up in extortion, having an affair with a married woman, and then having to write a pamphlet defending his conduct, but admitting that he had the affair? It's, It's John Adams just wondering how a smart man could be so dumb. And so... It's a very interesting personal, personal letter. Uh, the next letter after that is by um, James Madison. Of course, he became the President of the United States uh, after uh, Jefferson, and this is a very interesting letter because <laughs> it involves collecting autographs. It involves the, uh, the American uh, new ha- hobby of collecting autographs, and he writes to encourage a collector uh, to keep collecting autographs. Now, this is a letter from probably the greatest jurist in American history, John Marshall. He was the fourth Chief Justice of the United States. People don't know that he was also a cousin of, um, of, of Jefferson. They both came from uh, Virginia, and they both came from essentially the same family. And their, their fates came together in a lot of different ways. Uh, one of the ways was that Uh, Marshall presided over the treason trial of Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr, of course, is connected to everybody on this wall. He was a great military hero uh, in the Revolutionary War, and then, of course, he he killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel. And so this is a letter from the former uh, Chief Justice. He presided over that trial. Jefferson, behind the scenes, was trying to get Aaron Burr convicted, and probably engaged in some improper Conduct, um, ex partying judges. Uh, he had his own relative become the prosecutor in the case. And so it was, uh, uh, there's that connection. Um, okay, moving forward. We move forward now 60 years. This is a pardon signed by Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln rarely signed his name, Abraham Lincoln. He generally signed it, A. Lincoln. Um, And um, uh, the the current Secretary of State, you may be interested in knowing, uh, whose name is uh, Anthony uh, uh, Blinken, Um, uh, he signs his name, A. Blinken. And so people pronounce his name A. Blinken, but it's Blinken. But in any event, this is the real Abraham Lincoln. And this is one of the most important pardons ever granted during the Civil War. It was a pardon granted to some people and the, 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 the consequence, of the pardon, was that others joined essentially the Union side against the Confederacy. So this was a pardon that had very, very significant political uh, implications. Okay, so let's move now from the United States to uh, a different part of the world, uh, first to France and then to Israel. So many of you know, oh, before we get to that, I had forgotten one thing this is a a legal brief written by the young Abraham Lincoln when he was 30 something years old who was a lawyer who got on his horse and went all over in Illinois defending people this is a handwritten brief by Abraham Lincoln the whole brief is written by Abraham Lincoln and it's signed in a number of places Lincoln was a damn good lawyer of all the great figures in American history you know, Jefferson was a pretty good lawyer. Hamilton was a very good lawyer. Um, Adams, as we as we all know, defended the uh, people accused of the Boston Massacre, was also quite a good lawyer, but none of them compared to Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was a great lawyer. If he had never been president, he'd still be remembered uh, in history as one of the greatest lawyers, along with Daniel Webster and, and some 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 modern lawyers. But Abraham Lincoln was great, and I love having... A brief, an actual brief in the hand of Abraham Lincoln. And so just before the turn of the 20th century in the late 1890s, a Jewish man who was in the military in France was accused of treason and giving secrets uh, over to Austria Germany from France. His name was Dreyfus and it led to the famous Dreyfus Affair. And during the Dreyfus Affair, the country of France divided. and The great artists of France divided. Half of them were Dreyfus arts, people who supported Dreyfus. Half of them were very anti-Dreyfus. The Catholic Church had come out very strongly against uh, Dreyfus. Um, Many liberals came out in favor of Dreyfus. The issue was, was he framed? Um, Was he innocent? Was he guilty? Was he framed? And so the great writer, Emile Zola, took to his pen and wrote this. This is called J'accuse, I Accuse, an open letter to the President of the Republic of France by Emile Zola. And this paper turned around the Zola case and really, really gave rise to the attempt to vindicate Zola, which eventually occurred. His conviction was reversed. He spent, I think, eight years on Devil's Island under circumstances in which very few people live. But he lived, and his brother and members of his family fought very hard. But it was Zola who saved his life. And Zola, tragically, died in his own home, suffocated by a fireplace that was spewing and was blocked. And it's believed to this day by many, conspiracy theory you decide, that Emile Zola was murdered by members of the French Uh, military, who regarded him as a great enemy for having um, uh, saved the life and proved the innocence, not only proved the innocence of, of, of Dreyfus, but the guilt of the French military in framing him. And there's no doubt now that he was framed, that evidence was manufactured by French authorities. And one of the other men who was part of the campaign to save drivers, ultimately became the president of France. So this is an original copy of the newspaper. There are not too many in existence, but of the actual newspaper, La Rora, uh, and the actual are accused, which saved his, his life. Uh, moving forward a few years, um, Israel is about to be established. The United Nations uh, has a vote, and the vote takes place in November of 1947 and uh, the vote was what to do with the mandate. The British took over Palestine. Palestine was then included. Jordan, um, it was named by the Romans. For the Jews, it was always called Eretz Yisrael, the country of uh, Israel. There were Jews who lived there forever from the time well before Jesus um, till uh, the time that this event occurred. And so the United Nations decided to partition what was then Palestine into two states, essentially. One, a small state, a tiny little state, a fraction of what Israel now is, for the Jewish people, a Jewish state, the nation state of the Jewish people. It did not include Jerusalem. It included Tel Aviv. And it included just a a small area, basically, on the Mediterranean Sea coast. And the rest of uh, uh, what was called Palestine, which was included Eretz Yisrael, Jordan, Palestine, Jordan had already been uh, siphoned off and became uh, Hashemite, um, a Hashemite regime. Saudi Arabians came over and took over. Essentially, uh, Jordan it was then called Transjordan. And uh, so there was a vote at the United Nations, and this is the Palestine Post. You know, again, people say Palestine, that's, that's Arab. No, Palestine was the name of the country, uh, and it included the Jews. So the Palestine Post, which was a Jewish newspaper, it's now called the Jerusalem Post, uh, had this headline, Partition Approved by More Than Two-Thirds. 33 vote yes, 13 no, 10 abstain. That may have been the last time the United Nations ever voted in favor of Israel, now the United Nations has become a, a routine enemy of Israel. Uh, as I think Abi Ibn once said, if Algeria um, put a resolution in front of the General Assembly that the earth is flat and that Israel flattened it, it would win 126 to 39 with 27 abstentions. You could actually predict who would vote for it and who would vote against it. It doesn't matter what the substance is. If Israel is mentioned, then you know the vote is going to go against them. Israel has been condemned by the United Nations more than Iraq, more than China, more than Cuba, more than Syria, more than all of those countries in the world combined. Israel has been attacked and and and, and criticized and condemned and delegitimated. And that has very little to do with Israel. It has much more to do with what the United Nations consists of. So after this partition vote in 1947, uh, Great Britain decided to accept it and to leave uh, Palestine and allow the groups, the competing groups, the Jews and the Arabs, to decide for themselves what to accept this resolution. Israel immediately accepted it. And they declared a state, the State of Israel, Medinat Yisrael, in 1948. And this is the original copy of their Declaration of Independence, uh, Rashami, the first newspaper um, to recognize that there arises Medinat Israel, the nation of uh, Israel. So these are most of my my treasures. Um, now I'll show you one piece that I have hanging which nobody in my family likes to see hung um, because they would like to see the subject of it hung rather than the item itself. Um, This is a photograph, and you'll see there's a letter attached to it. This is a photograph of Joseph Goebbels, um, one of the most evil men in the history of the world. He was the propaganda minister of the Nazi regime who made the case essentially for killing all the Jews, six million of them. This photograph was taken before um, the genocide began. It was taken in the early 1930s when the Nazis came to power And it was taken by a great, great uh, photographer named Eisenstadt. And what happened, and the history of this picture is interesting, what happened is originally uh, Eisenstadt just came over and took a picture of him and he was smiling. And then somebody, one of his aides, whispered in his ear, that guy's Jewish, the photographer. And then Goebbels puts on that face. And the picture is entitled The Face of Evil. And... You just see the face and you just know that this is a man who you would not like to be having tea with. Um, Eventually, he was such an evil man that when the war was over, he believed that the Jews would come and kill all of his children or capture his children or rape them and rape his wife. So he went home right after Hitler committed suicide. He went home. And he poisoned his entire family, all of his children, and his wife. And then he shot himself in the head. Um, Then it turned out, of course, not a single descendant of any of the Nazi leaders was ever touched by the Jews or by anybody else. They believed in justice. They put on trial Goering and people like that, but they didn't put on trial Goering's wife or his children or his daughters or his brother. Um, And so this man, this horrible man... Killed his whole family for naught. He would have put on trial. He probably would have been executed. But uh, his children would never have been touched. They'd probably be alive today, some of them. Um, but uh, that's the evil that lurked in the heart of, um, of, of, of Goebbels. And, and so, you know, these are um, pieces of history. These are things that are so meaningful uh, to me. In my other room, and someday when we have more time, I'll show you the other room as well. I have much less serious memorabilia. Um, The moment the Brooklyn Dodgers won the World Series in 1955, um, uh, a program from Madison Square Garden with me playing basketball and guarding a kid named Ralphie Lipschitz, who changed his name to Ralph Lauren, This was in April of 1954, actually played in Madison Square Garden. Um, And uh, memorabilia, more personal memorabilia of that kind. But um, these are pieces of history and some of them will go to museums uh, when I'm gone. Uh, The Jefferson letter will obviously go to my son, who helped me find it. And uh, we'll see what other members of my family want. But eventually these pieces of history belong to history and belong to museums. I'm glad to be a temporary guardian of them. I treat them with enormous respect. I look at them all the time. Uh, They inspire me uh, and I need inspiration, you know, because I'm attacked so much. You all know how I was recently attacked and recently vindicated. Um, And I continue to be attacked for so many of the things that I've done representing President Trump against an unconstitutional impeachment, representing Jeffrey Epstein. So I need to have inspiration, and I get it from from Jefferson. I get it from Lincoln. I get it from Hamilton. I get it from Washington. I get it from Emile Zola. I get it from the the great people, the brave people who established uh, the state of Israel. I get it from John Marshall. I get it from Abraham uh, Lincoln. And I hope, at least derivatively, Those of you who see these treasures, and they're not treasures financially, they're treasures emotionally. When you see these treasures, uh, you will be uh, equally inspired. And so um, we'll see more treasures over the years, but every so often I'll pause in my political presentations and my legal presentations just to remind you uh, of the great history of this country and anybody who really negates uh, America and has to understand, as Churchill once said about democracy, the worst form of government except for all the others. You can say that about America with all the criticism we do of it. It's the greatest country in the world. um, And you can say it's a, a, a bad country except for all the others. And so I'm proud to be an American. I'm proud to be a Jew. I'm proud to be a supporter of Israel, of Medinat Israel. I hope if I had been alive during the time of Zola, I would have been a defense attorney for Emile Zola. I hope if I had been alive at the time of the Boston Massacre, I would have joined John Adams and been a defense attorney for those who were accused of the Boston Massacre. If I were alive at the time of the Burr trial, uh, of uh, Lincoln's time, that I would have been on the right side of history. Now, if you're a defense lawyer, Nobody ever thinks you're on the right side of history at the time you're doing it. And hopefully history, which I love and which I show on my wall, will ultimately always be on the side of civil liberties, due process, free speech, and others that make America a unique country in the history of the world. Uh, See you soon. Thanks.